Have you ever seen a business that was forced to go places and to do things to satisfy the ego of the entrepreneur, even though it was destructive for the business? The business was happy. It wanted to run. It had gotten to the point of maturity and it just needed to run, but it was tortured and forced to be this other thing and to do these contortions purely to satisfy the entrepreneur's ego. I've seen it. I've done it to some degree. It's painful to watch. How do you relate to that idea? From the multiverse, it's the J and J podcast. Here with my co-founder, partner in crime, the other J, the other J, the other half of the secret sauce, brother. Kicking off this new endeavor, a new podcast. I couldn't think of a better guy to be doing it with. Thanks for being here. I appreciate that. I can give a lot of better guys, but I'm I was the only one in Austin today, the, so I'm glad that you only, took me up on it. You were the only uh, the only stunt double available. Yes. So I'm excited about this because we're talking about kind of a big idea, which is what we learned over the last decade, 10 years. That represents the bulk of my entrepreneurial career. You've been at this a little longer than I have, but still, if we're not capable of extracting some value and some insight over thinking about what happened over the last decade, we ain't doing this right. I know I've got some. I know you've got some. Before we jump in, what are we actually talking about? What happened over the last decade for you? What were you, what were you doing? What were you up to? So, you know, for me, for me, my birthday that's, that end in a zero culminate with the decades, right? So I turned 40 this year, turned 30, you know, in 2010. So it, it, typically those birthdays that end in a zero and a five, you start to reflect. And even if you don't, if you start to have a change of a, of a year, you reflect a little bit of a change of a decade. That's when people really start to sit back and say, where am I at? What's going right? What have I learned? What do I need to, to readjust? And so you challenged me when we came in here. What are some of the best lessons that I learned in the last decade? So the, what do we call them, the tens? What do we, uh, we're in the 20s now. What do we call the last year? I don't even know what the name of that is. From 2010 to 2020, the uh, teens. The, the teens. There we go, the teens. The, the, the teens of 2000, of the millennia. Right. Um, a lot has happened. It's my second decade of being an entrepreneur. Wow. been kind of a self-supported, non-completely unemployable entrepreneur since I was 20 years Incredible. old. Incredible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, working on my third company with you at Renscale. Uh, first company was Pound Interactive, my internet, uh, my website design company, then Juicy Results, uh, which was first a marketing agency, which turned into a sales and CRM consulting company. And now we have Renscale. So uh, yeah, that's what I want to do today is reflect on you know what are the driving lessons that I'm taking forward with me into my third decade as an entrepreneur. All right, so let me reciprocate. So 2008, I start managing my property, lead gen operations, selling leads to property managers, basically just a kind of a clone of all property management. Do that for a couple of years. Realize I want to pivot, start doing lead simple, start doing PM grow, pivot into uh, profit coach, pivot into rent scale, a series of kind of a string of companies all within the same vertical. The thing that comes to mind for me right out of the the gate is a quote that you told me, and I believe it was from Dan Kennedy, about what is the one strategic advantage that you would want to have. If you could wave a magic wand and have any form of a strategic advantage, well, I'll stop there. You tell the rest of the story then. 
So it's a Gary Halpert. Oh, okay. Uh, Gary Halpert concept. So uh, I love this because I learned this in a book about copywriting. And he said, somebody asked me, what's your best tip on copywriting? And for me, it's a perfect parallel for a business. And so he says, if you could have one strategic advantage, what would it be? And Gary says, a hungry market, right? So if you're opening up a restaurant down the street and you can have any competitive advantage you want, is it you know the best chef in town? Is it the best location, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, all of that is a moot point. What you need to thrive in business is a hungry market. So that's definitely resonated with me in a massive way. And it kind of parlays into my first idea in a somewhat odd way. But my first lesson is that entrepreneurship is a poor way to make money, but a fantastic way to find meaning, fulfillment, and purpose. If that's what you're into, if that's your calling, if it's not your calling, it's a poor way to do either of those things, poor way to make money and a poor way to find purpose. But I find that entrepreneurship, at this point in my career, I'm really clear in the fact that some people are compelled, they're called, it's compulsive behavior. When people ask me, I'm thinking about starting a business, what should I do? My answer is universally, don't do it. An entrepreneur says, screw you, I'm going to do it anyway. And then God bless, you know, you're, you're on the path. But entrepreneurship as a way to make money, like the only reason I'm doing this, the only reason I'm grinding, the reason I got into it is for a financial outcome. To me, it's irrational. Doesn't make any sense. We're in an up economy. Tech companies, get a craft, get a 21st century craft, be, be technical, be a product manager, get a great stock plan, work for a company with high velocity. That, to me, is a reliable, sensible way to make money. Entrepreneurship is an invitation into self-flagellation, an invitation into questioning and unnecessary inquiry and all kinds of things that if you're just not like deeply compelled by the motivation, I don't know why you would get into this. So for me, what that clarifies is when I'm having a financial dollars and cents conversation with somebody around entrepreneurship and business and business performance, I'm excited to figure out how to extract more value, more money, more financial reward out of the business. At the same time, I never want to confuse or conflate that conversation with the bigger bigger conversation of, are you clear on why you are in this? Are you clear on who you are trying to impact and the external value, the overwhelming external value that you are trying to create? Because if, if you're not clear on that, if that's an after that, if that's a necessary evil in order to get paid, in my experience, this isn't going to work. So that's that's first big lesson for me. So sum that up for me. First big lesson is that entrepreneurship is a terrible way to make money. But a great, a fantastic way to find purpose and meaning. And in so much as you find purpose and meaning through it, you may be one of the, the, the small few that end up receiving a, a really significant financial reward. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to go a different direction on this. So what you just said is how I think everybody should do anything in life, any choice, any job you take, any relationship you get into, Fair. right? It should be this bigger picture of why am I doing this? Um, do I think that way just because I'm an entrepreneur? Or is that, a, is that truly a lesson that you think should drive more people with big decisions? You're absolutely right. I mean, you, you asked me before this, we talking just business and personal, and it's all kind of packaged up in one thing. Same thing about uh, working a job, right? Having a job that you hate. I'm just doing a turn and paycheck. 
Does that make sense? Eh, probably not. Right? Pursuing the things that derive joy, and I'm, I'm skipping this some other points, but mm-hmm. you're right. It's definitely a bigger lesson than just yeah. entrepreneurship. But that's the world and the live that I breathe in where there's this tendency to want to reduce what we're doing down to financial propositions. I'm really interested in that, but I'm also very clear that to reduce entrepreneurship down to a series of financial propositions is to confuse entirely what's happening. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, that was just a sincere question that I asked because I was, you know, curious about that when you said that. And I thought, you know, that's really the way I approach most big decisions, right? There's with anything, any, anything endeavor, any relationship you get into, any area of focus, there's the, 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 what you think you're getting into it for, like the paycheck, right? You could take a job because you're, it pays X, but in reality, the most success I've had, the things that most people are getting into it for actually just come as a result of the bigger things, right? So you get into a relationship to not be lonely, right? But if you move into a relationship, more of a place to give and to really, you know, create something where one plus one is bigger than two, Mm -hmm. then the loneliness goes away as a side effect, but it's not why you're in it, right? And so same as a paycheck. So anyway, a little bit of a tangent, but I think there's there's a bigger concept there. It's a little bit of an iceberg. Uh, and I think this, the reverberations of this idea will flow through the rest of the lessons, at least yeah. for me. What about you? What's, where would you start off? Lesson from the decade. Ooh. All right. Um, so mine is, again, we're going to go specifically about entrepreneurism because uh, that's where I spend all my time and, you know, been um, much like you. It's a little bit of an addiction of mine. Sure. Um, something I learned. So having already been in my second business, joining entrepreneurs organization, starting to um, what, what's great about entrepreneurs organization is it's very case study driven. It's all experience share. So we have a, we have a, we have a concept called Gestalt. I'm never allowed to tell you what you should do. The Gestalt protocol. The Gestalt protocol. Absolutely. I can only share with you my experience. Mm. So, mm. so EO in general is very, Hey, here's what I did. Here's what worked for me. Take from it what you can. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it's very case study driven. So you go to these regional conferences, national conferences, and yes, there are people who've written books that are up there with their platform, but the majority of them are other EO members who've, you know, reached some level of success, had an exit, and they just want to tell their story, right? Mm -hmm. And so you start getting exposed to all of these massive, you know, um, successes, right? Just absolute, you know, breakthrough, start a company, grow, 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 exit, you know, 10 million, 100 million, whatever it is. And the more I did it, the more, you know, I'm trying to fix my business at the same time. And I realized how complex my business was. And it was like, what other services can I offer? How can I get deeper in this? How can I make it better? And the lesson that I took away, this is my number one business lesson, Jordan, that I want to share. And it's true for me is the simpler it is, the bigger it scales. Mm -hmm. So when you think about all the case studies we can talk about, like Apple and Southwest and, you know, name any business, right? Ikea, It wasn't that they started the business and did everything well for everybody. It was that they refined and refined and refined until they found one nerve, one thing that that was big, that everybody cared about. And they just kept getting better and better and better at that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you look back and you're like, oh, well, now Apple has a bunch of products and things like that. Southwest does all these things. But when you really look at the growth from zero to one to two, it's really about simplicity. So for me, that was at all the case studies... I saw um, were businesses who just kept it really simple, but they absolutely mastered one thing amazingly versus just having a ton of products and going bigger and better and more. So that's it to me that I've learned in everything in organizations, 
dealing with complexity, the simpler it is, the, the bigger it'll scale. I love the conviction that you have about this. I've seen, working with you, I've seen this come up a number of times where you really push back when there's any sense that we're compensating, kind of using, there's a lot of crutches in business, right? Like yeah. working harder. Working harder is a crutch. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty shitty crutch and it doesn't take you real far. Yeah. I think Ad- we would all. Adding features. Adding features. I think we would all intuit that Richard Branson, a thousand times more successful, he's like, he ain't working a thousand times harder, right? Nope. So complexity is a poorer crutch. Working harder is a poorer crutch. And that's very much what I think is my tendency from time to time is to look at a situation and ask myself, you know, what, what is a, a way where we could just, in a more incremental way, add value as opposed to focusing on a more exponential solution or as opposed to focusing on working with the right set of people, Right. We just recently talked about some ranking of clients, client alignment, client fit, radically clarifying. Mm -hmm. In theory, we're selling the same thing, but in instances where there's a real fit, what we're actually selling is dramatically more effective. So in our business, I noticed that the simplicity is what creates velocity, and it's the the velocity that's this compounding factor. Agree? Well said. It's the flywheel. It's it's the good to great flywheel, right? The first spin is hard. The second spin's a little easier, and eventually you just have to stop pushing because that wheel is just greased and it's spinning so fast. To me, that only comes from the essence of solving a problem, not from piling on a bunch of features or taking on more tangential markets, right? It's it's about honing down. Less and less. Getting that wheel balanced, right? It only spins if it's perfectly sanded and balanced, right? So that, to me, is like the visual I always think about with our product offering. Mm-hmm. It's how do we get that to a perfectly round, absolutely balanced, as nothing more than it needs to be wheel so that it can spin as fast as possible? Essence over form was one of the things that we initially talked about in coming together in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Essence over form is another way of saying Let's not get overmarried to the structure. Let's not get overmarried. Let's not bring dogma into this relationship. What's the essence of what we're trying to do? We're trying to build something that is creating massive results, that's a ton of fun to run, and that is highly profitable. Uh, Elf would be another way to put it, that Joe Polish phrase, easy, lucrative, and fun. As I think about the second lesson for me, it is, it's related to this, and it's the idea that you are not your business. When I wind back the clock, to my first business, they were one. Me and the business were one. If the business did work, did not work out, I did not work out. If the business didn't work out, it exposed the fact that I wasn't actually an entrepreneur. And where, where I was at, I would say, wouldn't far from saying that I kind of questioned my manhood and my identity related to that. Having started multiple entities, it's very clear that I'm not. Some of those have, have died and they're dead and I'm still alive and I'm still going. And better for it, probably. Absolutely. Shedding things. So the idea that I am not my business is questioning the idea that my work is my worth. It's also allowing me to allow a business to have its own life independent of me. Have you ever seen a business that was forced to go places and to do things to satisfy the ego of the entrepreneur, even though it was destructive for the business? The business was happy. It wanted to run. It had gotten to the point of maturity and it just needed to run, but it was tortured and forced to be this other thing and to do these contortions purely to satisfy the entrepreneur's ego. I've seen it. I've done it to some degree. It's painful to watch. How do you relate to that idea? Yeah, I think there was a, there was a big time when, when my marketing agency, Juicy Results, was really growing, right? And 
um, I had dogma. I had my identity wrapped up on what kind of clients we were going to work with, who we were going to be, how we were going to handle the service. And all I was doing was getting in the way of my team, which mm-hmm. was trying to make the company better. Like you said, the business wants to run, whether that's the demand from the market or the mo- momentum that your team has. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, it was an extension of me, right? It was the ego and the identity. Um, so I can definitely relate and uh, held the business back for a lot of years because of that before I realized that I would, I would rather be right than right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'd rather the business work than me be right personally. Right? I love that. So the initial business that I mentioned, Manage My Property, that business didn't die. That business, at the point that I left it and I put it in passive mode, went from being this thing that was forced to bear all of the full weight of my lifetime of aspiration to instead being a place that only gave me a paycheck. And eventually, that was pretty awesome. Once I got over it not fulfilling all of this ambition and it just became this passive entity that sends me a check, that's actually pretty cool. You know, That was really clarifying for me that sometimes killing something, letting something die, or at least removing the aspiration that you're placing on top of it is the most functional thing that can give birth and be the seedbed for a future thing if you're willing to create the space and have enough belief in the future. My actions in the present are always rooted and anchored in the level of optimism that I have about the future. That It's clarifying to me. I come back to it time and time again. You and I just had a conversation recently about scarcity versus abundance. And, and for some folks, those terms can feel a little uncomfortable. What are we talking about? Is this, is this Tony Robbins just pure belief? But in practical terms, the level of optimism that you have about the future informs the amount of risk and the, the flavor and the quality of the bets that you're willing to make. So when I'm running a business and I get it to the point where it's sufficiently mature, there are some lessons that you have to imbibe. Things like, I'm not that important. If I've done this right, the team can actually run. Well, what does that mean for me if I'm not needed? What does that mean if my contribution in a team meeting was, was 10%? I added some value, but it was incremental. Those, the ego separation of acknowledging that you're not your business and just processing through that has been significant for me, uh, and I'm really grateful to have that kind of separation. There's some, some lightness and freedom in it. Absolutely. How about you, man? What's your n- next uh, lesson? So, uh, by the way, I just want to say as a teaser, tangential, one that we brainstormed that I'm not going to get to bring up as my top five, but you really teased at it, is this idea that when, when it comes to understanding people, identity is the number one driving factor, right? And that is a little bit of a marking lesson for anybody listening there. Yeah, when you understand who somebody thinks they are and who they want to be, you understand what makes them tick. And so I'm not going to use that as one of my lessons, but you just teased right at it when you said, you know, hey, I'm making these business decisions that are maybe not the best business decisions because of that. I've been there, right? And I'm not going to go into the idea of status alignment. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and all of the techniques around that, that around positioning in a sales conversation. But what are we going to talk yeah, about? Exactly. What's your, Some good what's mojo there. Okay, we'll come back to that maybe all in a future right, episode. All right. all right. So number lesson number two, I think you're going to love this. You and I have not talked about this before. Um, I learned this from Tim Ferriss. Minimum effective dose. Ooh. So you learn something new. Mm-hmm. You go to PM Grow. Mm-hmm. You hear about doing X, or you find out that you know somebody that you admire does journaling or meditation or whatever it is that they do. 
but you try it and it doesn't work out for you. Mm-hmm. It's very likely that you did not take the minimum effective dose. So Jordan, mm-hmm. if you did three push-ups a day for the rest of your life, would you be a better person? <laughs> no, not Probably really. Not, you know, mm-hmm. No you impact. Know. Yeah. If you did 11 push-ups, well, you might still get sore, but you're probably not going to get the results you want. You know what I mean? So there, now we start doing 20 push-ups every single day. We might start to be tipping into minimum effective dose. So if you're trying something that you, you're excited about that somebody else did, everybody else is talking about you know, either meditation or journaling or you know, goal setting or cold calling, or whatever it is, and you say, I tried it and it didn't work. Yes. Did you hit the minimum effective dose? Oh, I love this. Just like medicine, right? You I just take a little this. bit of medicine, but it's not the minimum effective dose. You don't get better. Oh, man. This is like burned into my mind as somebody that's been in a position of teaching and, and propagating certain ideas or practices and then having it put back. Tried that. Didn't, didn't work. work. <laughs> pay-per-click. SEO. I spent $9 a day on pay-per-click and yes. I didn't get rich. Doesn't right, work. Right. Hiring people in the state of California, starting such and such a kind of business, dieting, working out, the hubris and the arrogance in wholesale dismissing things that clearly work for a broad swath of the population because it didn't work for you, that is the essence of delusion. Couldn't agree more. I love that. You'd be excited about that one. Yeah. There's a lot of juice in that. And so it's, it's an opportunity to reflect and to ask were you curious or were you committed with what we're talking about? Mm-hmm. And there's no judgment in that. Even as I say it, it's so hard for me to get over the judgment in that language because I want to say whatever it is, I'm committed. I'm all in, baby. Alpha male entrepreneur, I'm all in. The reality is there's a lot of things I'm just curious about and things that I still kind of have some guilt over like, oh man, I should be really into that, whether it be budgeting or working it out or whatever. But that distinction is really helpful. Mm-hmm. If you're just curious, acknowledge it, own it. And there's going to be more... Uh, peace and more clarity around just understanding what were the things that you were all in on and that you can you validated one way or the other and what were the things that you just dabbled in and maybe the only reward you were looking for was to disprove it oh see i tried it it didn't work mm-hmm. you know identity absolutely i'm with you well said all right my my number three my third lesson of the decade and this is actually a title from a book by Andy Grove, former CEO of Intel. Only the paranoid survive. Put another way, question your reality. Put another way, resist the institutional imperative. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cognito air sum, I think, therefore I am for the entrepreneur. I'm here, therefore I'm going to bust my ass, baby. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to fight hard. I'm going to make it work. I will overcome all of that is appealing to me on a deeply ingrained way. Like five-year-old me being in the presence of my grandpa and my dad outside doing work projects and it just being really clearly communicated, you can do anything you want in life except be lazy. Because if you are lazy on any level, you are the scum of the earth. That was really clearly, but organized crime is about at parity with being lazy. That was what was communicated to me and I took it to heart and the result of that is that it is the result of that is that my my autopilot is able to achieve a sufficient level of success that it's really easy for me not to question it my autopilot doesn't look like me failing through life repeatedly and just flailing my autopilot looks like a level of success that most people would be happy with and that I should be happy with. Who am I to question Mm -hmm. that? However, 
my ambition is sufficiently above my autopilot that I really have to stop and pause and ask myself, what is really going on? It's not enough for me to work harder. It's not enough for me to optimize, for me to get more efficient. When I, when I go to conferences, when I read books, it's easy for me to engage in the fantasy that I'm one idea away from life transformation and life change. The reality is that I'm going to continue to read books. I love learning. It's one of the things that I love about you. But what really drives change for me is for me to stop and think and to absorb and process at the big picture, what's working, what's not. And it's that it's the cadence and the rapidity of work that turns off that questioning and that curiosity and presumes I have an answer. And the answer is to just to keep executing. So for me, that is my number three. Only the paranoid survive. Question inertia. Ask what is actually going on here right now. Interesting. Yes. I love that. Question everything. And I would just add to what you said. It's easy not to think, to do the hard working, to use the muscle that burns the most calories, which is our mind, because the noise is so satisfying. If I'm, if I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing, it's noise, 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 noise. Execution is important, right? Absolutely. But execution without pausing and to make sure you're on track and not running you know, running east to see a sunset, right, is just insanity, right? And so it's that, it's that noise that can be addicting that we have to unplug from sometimes. And it's immensely satisfying when we do, at least it is for me, right? When we have a time like we're about to do this weekend where we just sit and we say, we're not going to work in the business. We're just going to talk about what's possible and ask the questions. You're going to challenge every rosy assumption that I bring to the table, and you're going to tell me we can't do that, and I'm going to have to argue with you and tell you why we can't. And, right? and it's, it's immensely satisfying, right? Yeah. Because we're going to yeah. have to go through that process. So I'm obviously teasing about the roles we play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with that. So, all right. So that was, that was number... Here's the last thing I want to say about that. Yeah. We know it's not about effort. Everybody has the same number of bullets in the chamber. One of the things that I appreciate about you is that I intuit and I sense that you follow this same train of logic. The train of logic is this. I want a level of result that is beyond what I currently have that's never going to change. My ambition assumes one of two things. Either there's some external force preventing me from being more successful or it's me doing it to myself. I assume it's the latter. Mm -hmm. If it is the latter, that's derivative of my actions, which are derivative of my thoughts Therefore, there is a massive level of upside in being told and being informed and finding out that I'm, I'm doing and thinking things that are, that are wrong, quote-unquote, or incongruous. Sure. Either win or learn. Yeah. That, that's very meaningful to me. When, I, when, I, when there's an oh shit moment, in part, I'm like, yes, I found it, baby. One more, I'm putting it in my backpack. I, I sense the same thing about you and it just it drives a lot of optimism for me and a lot of openness and it's one of the things that's allowed me to shed dogma well uh, you know let me add to that here's my philosophy about this something that i've come to learn this in that last decade that i'm just going to riff on is you say you know, I, it's fun to be out there and think you're just one idea away from success mm -hmm. that there is something you don't know yet that when you will learn mm -hmm. will change everything mm -hmm. i have started to realize and this is by people far smarter than me that, you know, we get bigger breakthroughs by unlearning something that we think is wrong. Ooh. It's actually that we're walking around with a backpack full of broken ideas mm -hmm. that we have to slowly discard as we test them out, right? Because we've been alive 40 years, you a little bit less. Mm -hmm. 
We've been surrounded by a whole lot of people who do not have the success that we're seeking, mm -hmm. trying to tell us the way to do things, the way the world is, and we've been buying that bag of goods. So. And some of those ideas were useful at one point. They yeah. just, they've outlived their expiration date. Exactly, they got us the results we have today, and they're not gonna get, so I would just say that, that to me is a big epiphany that I've had you know, several years ago, is often the growth is not coming from learning something I didn't know, it's from disowning an idea that I was using that wasn't serving me. Shedding a belief, I yeah. love it, yeah. love it. So right. that was a bonus one on the side. There we go. All right, um, this is the concept number three um, that, that I wanna tell a story with. This is a big part of my last decade. This, there was a major change that I went through probably about four or five years ago because of this exercise. And the term I'm gonna use to describe it is actually a new book. So I wasn't using this term, but I love the way that uh, Marie uh, Folio said it in her new Be book. School. Yeah, so she, her new book is Everything is Figure Outable. Love that. Right, if, if something isn't figure outable, then it's not actually a problem, it's just a fact of life, mm -hmm. right? But anything that we should be thinking of, and like, just like you said, you're of the belief that it's something you're doing that's holding you back versus something outside of your constraints, right? Always taking accountability, ownership. So everything is figure outable. It's all about the questions you ask. So we talk about this all the time. We get together in a meeting, you might say something like, somebody might naively say, can we do $300,000 of revenue a month? Right? It's a terrible question. Much more useful question is, what would have to change have for to us to accomplish $300,000, right? Mm -hmm. um, $300,000 is a lot of money, but at the same time for a business, it's actually a pretty insignificant amount of money. There are millions of businesses. There's it. probably 100,000 businesses that we can see out this window that are doing 300,000 of business, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're not doing it, it seems absolutely unachievable. Mm -hmm. So when I was running the marketing agency, we were transitioning. So one of the Sidebar, one of the downsides about running a marketing agency or a technology company is it's hard to gain leverage because everything changes every year, right? So <laughs> what worked in SEO in, say, like 2012 did not work in 2014, right? When we launched the company in 2009, Facebook didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Three years later, Facebook marketing was one of our biggest services, you know what I mean? So we were constantly reinventing the company. And we were going through a particularly um, like challenging time where we realized the things we were selling were not competitive, right? We're really trying to reinvent things. We weren't making any money. We're growing on the top line, but we're losing all this money. And so we'd have all these meetings, and I was trying to engage the team. And I just remember I was sick and tired of, I'm saying, well, what if we charge more? And the immediate answer was, we can't charge more because nobody else is charging more. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what if we simplified it? No, we can't do that because the people aren't only really buying because they're getting the, the, the full suite of services. Okay, so what if we outsource? Oh, no, we can't outsource sex because the reason they're like, everything was can't, can't, can't. <laughs> so I heard something on a podcast somewhere uh, along the way where someone says, I stopped using the word can't because can't immediately cuts off your thinking. As soon as you say the word can't, it's a message to your brain that there are no more options and it's an excuse to stop looking. Mm. And so I said, guys, we're not going to use can't in our meetings anymore. And I had this little um, bracelet that someone gave me. I said, if you ever hear me say the word can't, tell me. I'm going to try to make it 30 straight days without moving the bracelet from one wrist to the other. Because if you catch me, I'm going to move the bracelet to the other wrist, right? And so what it did was, me doing it personally as the leader, it, it became infectious, right? And so I would challenge them, and they'd say, we can't raise our prices. I would say, you can't say that, right? So you have to think a little harder. They have to say, well... When we do a competitive analysis, everybody else selling what we're selling is in this price range, and so we think we have to be there. 
It's a very different conversation. Totally. So then you can start to say things such as, well, how are we going to differentiate our product? What do these people really want? Why are they spending that? Are they spending that because that's what they're used to? What's the value they're getting for that, right? And it completely changed the conversation. So everything is figure outable, and it's all about the question, the way that you phrase the question. Oh, man, I love this. So there's a lot to riff on there, but the first thing that's come to mind, the first one is that who is how when there's a one-to-one relationship between my ability to do something and me actually understanding how to do it, that's a shackle. That's a, that's a box. That's a prison cell. Mm. I don't want to live in that. And that's not how I operate living in society generally. You could say that civilization is defined by the number of functions that performed invisi- invisibly in the background. Civilization is defined by water flowing somewhere, electricity flowing somewhere, all of these magical things are happening, and I'm getting the benefits and assuming that it will operate in the same way. The progress and maturity of a business and of an entrepreneur is to disconnect how in order to think about the the why and the if and to commit to the who. You and I have seen this internally with RentScale. The right who will think about and figure out and go places that we weren't going to go. Yeah. It's not a question of will they do it as good of us, as good as us. It's a que- an, an assumption that they will do it in ways that we never could. They have talents, skills, and abilities. And so the, the question of establishing the who and the, the, the primacy of that and the focus in that area eliminates a thousand hows that I'll never think about and I don't care about and honestly are kind of toxic for me to have that level of proximity to in order to get things done. Corollary thought is being able to say, I don't know, and the honesty of being able to admit that you don't understand something. We were talking about it this just previous to hitting the record button. There is this idea, not to philosophize too much, but there's this distinction between objectivism versus existentialism. Objectivists believe that there is an objective reality and then debate the degree to which we can perceive it or understand it. Existentialists believe that everything is subjective. There is no objective reality. I am, and I fall on this spectrum as an objectivist who believes that I have a very weak grasp on reality. And in light of that, I might as well optimize and go after and focus on the beliefs, belief set that most aligns with the outcomes that I want for myself and my others. But the first step there is saying, I don't know. Clinging to the idea of, of certainty around can't, can't is a form of certainty. What are you getting from that? You know, it's not like it's, it's not completely irrational. There's some benefit. In, in that situation, what would you say the team was was getting from the can't that motivated the clinging to it. That's a great point. I mean, uh, people crave certainty, right? And, and people, we go going back to identity, right? They, you know, w- we've done everything. We've worked really hard, and we haven't been able to solve this problem. There's nothing you're going to say in a meeting or ask mm-hmm. that's going to all of a sudden solve this problem. We've already done all the thinking. This problem is unsolvable. Yeah, yeah. So by the very nature of being open-minded to there being a solution, I think that they were specifically, it was, this is, they were great people, but this was the culture I had created, which is a whole other conversation. Um, Genius they, of a Thousand Helpers, whole other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they didn't want to be open to this idea that they had not found the solution and that the solution was there. Hey guys, Jordan and Jeremy here. We wanted to pull you away from this episode for a second to tell you about an online training we've put together to show you exactly what the fastest growing property managers in America are doing. You're gonna learn how to attract the clients you want, 
protect the margins in your business, and consistently set and hit meaningful sales goals each and every quarter. Now there's a simple but powerful framework that will help you do this, and I'll walk you through all four steps of the framework. We started RentScale because of the gap between how much effort and process goes into the operational side of the business compared to sales and marketing even though the growth function is arguably where the bulk of the value-creating potential exists for each and every business owner. The answer is going pro. The answer is operationalizing sales. And I'm not going to lie, it's really hard work. But the reward is worth the price. And that's the reason we've gone so far down the rabbit hole of property management sales. We've now built sales playbooks for over 70 property management companies, and the results have been extraordinary. I really wanted to break the art of scaling down into a proven, repeatable process that any business owner can implement. It's called the blueprint for doubling your door count in the next one to three years while replacing yourself and building a team you love. And it's totally free. You can find it online at doublemypm.com. That's doublemypm.com. PM being short for property management, of course. We basically spilled everything we do to help managers grow on this one training. So make sure to get to doublemypm.com today. Enjoy the rest of this episode, guys, and see you on the training. My fourth lesson of the decade is related, and it is the idea that results are reality. When I think about self-assessment, I think about grading myself along such and such a rubric, I can really simplify by interpreting results as the answer to the question, how am I doing in such and such an area? How effective of a leader am I? How effective of an entrepreneur am I? We can make that kind of an open-ended, ambiguous thing where we could debate, or we could just say, well, what are actual results? What is the size of organization, moving at what pace, driving what kind of revenue? Assuming those are the objectives and goals, which for me, they are, that is the answer. I don't need to make it any more complex than that. And using that heuristic allows me to own what is actually happening, which is incredibly empowering. The upside of blaming yourself, which a mentor told me many, many years ago, best two-word piece of advice I've ever gotten, blame yourself. The upside of that is that I have agency and I have control. Momentary pain, sometimes it means I have to acknowledge um, I'm failing. I'm doing a poor job. But the long-term upside is huge. So results are reality. You are what you do. My real commitments are always easy to understand. When I think about what I was committed to in 2019, it shouldn't take a lot of thinking through. What did I actually do? And therefore, it really comes down to being curious about the behaviors or the thoughts that I'm engaging in that are incongruous with what I want. If I can stop judging those things and I can just get really curious to explore and understand the real motivation between those things that I'm doing that are not aligned with the outcomes that I want, for me, I've experienced a ton of possibility and change around suspending my judgment long enough to be curious about those things. It's been huge for me, man. That's been, that's been transformational. So you're saying that to you, the results are a kind of a form of truth. Absolutely. It's going to allow you to uh, diagnose whether you're telling yourself a story mm. versus what you actually think is happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would add to that that, you know, I think that results are important, but results are not a static thing, right? A, a one-dimensional thing. So for a great example is like, you and I are looking at buying a company and we look at the P&L. Well, that P&L isn't the true story. If they're making $10,000 a month 
and profit, it's a very different story if last month they only made 1000 Sure. Versus, you know, they just started the company and they're scheduled to make 5000 you know, 50000 next month, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's, it's something I always think about, true. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yes, people love results because they're black and white, right? But I always try to keep in mind the real value is when you are around, when you are part of it or you are privy to what happened, and you're able to pair the results with the cause, the cause and the effect, right? The results with the effort, right? I think that's one of the things that I really value and crave is um, always understanding what what were the results and what truly led to those results and how do I strip everything else away? So I just want to add that. I've been thinking a lot about that. The, The dynamics of results and not just looking at them as black and white, but that there's actually many ways to look at a result and decide what's for you. Having done consulting, you appreciate the importance and the relative low cost of applying nuance and inquiry relative to the results that it creates. Yes. In my own life, I have so much certainty that it's like, hey, there's just no nuance. Like my thoughts are true. We don't need to go too far. With someone else, it blows my mind how much value can be created with just through inquiry that stems from not knowing. I genuinely don't know. So I'm just asking questions, just peeling back Mm -hmm. the onion. And so from my vantage point, it's really easy to kind of parse out what's going on and to have you explain to me at a level of depth that can expose a root cause issue that when I apply it to myself, sometimes that, that level of inquiry isn't always there. So I'm with you. Nuance is everything in business. Yeah. Nuance is the whole game. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess my takeaway there that, I, that I've learned is that results matter, but the story about the results are equally important when you can really put them together, right? So people, are, you know, I don't want to hear a story, just show me the numbers, which I, I crave that, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I'm having an appreciation that they're both equally important and it takes some real sophistication to not let the story blur the results, not let the results completely crowd out the story. You've probably heard me say before what I make up about the situation. That's a way of relating to this. By me saying what I'm making up about it, I'm prefacing it by saying, I don't understand what's actually happening here, but I'm having an emotional reaction to it and I want to share it with you Mm -hmm. in order to validate its truth or not. The way, the story that we're making up about things is reality for us. So 100% with you on that. I love it. What do you have as your fourth lesson of the decade? All right. Let's talk about team, Jordan. Something that we've uh, been very fortunate with at Renscale, but we've been fortunate because we've been very deliberate. And I feel like we are both building Renscale on the back of all the mistakes that we've made in the past. Mm -hmm. Myself specifically, but I know from conversations we've had that you're drinking the same Kool-Aid I'm drinking. Um, And and I've spent decades making terrible team decisions, right? Falling in love with people, um, having an ego and not letting people be better than me, right? Um, Not giving people what they need to grow, like expecting um, growth, but not wanting to water, right? Not putting in what I need to get out of it. So um, it is another thing I can really attribute to EO uh, is that I think most people, so when when you start a business or even if you're a manager, Jordan, everybody thinks they know how to hire people. Like, there's no class on how to hire somebody, right? Like, nobody talks about this. It's just like this assumed thing, like, okay, here's your job. You're going to have a team. No problem. Go hire. Like, and everyone's like, oh, I'm great at hiring people. Like, no one, you know what I mean? Like, how hard can it be? I want good people to do a great job. You do too, right? I mean, we're all optimizing for the same thing. 
it's crazy, right? I, I know how to do this job. I know what a good person looks like. I'll know it when I see it, right? Okay, this, there is nothing that I can think of that gives an owner more leverage than recruiting, hiring, training people to do the job better than they can do, right? This is, this is where we should be spending all our time, and this is where most business owners and managers want to get it done and move on as fast as possible, right? So for me, the, the fourth lesson is team is everything, and that an A player, like a true A player, is worth three times Exponential. what a B player is, right? So uh, I shared that quote with you from the container store. This is a direct quote from them. They said, we believe um, A players are can do the work of three average employees. But the good news is, is you don't have to pay an A player three times what you pay an average. That's leverage, right? So you might pay an A player 50% more than an average person. Some business owners look at that and be like, that's crazy, right? I was expecting to spend 50. This person needs 75 I, I'm not even paying myself 75, right? Like some, you know, Absolutely. my early days as a business Oh, man. Mm. Meanwhile, I can tell you, you can give me five people at that $50,000 if they're going to look and, and work the way that I've seen average people work, and they're not going to do the job that that one A player is going to do, right? Jeremy, I think there's some distinction here, and I think there's a box to draw around what you just said. That is the distinction between hiring a functionary versus hiring a leader. I question what you just said in the context of working on a factory line. I question whether or not a A factory line wheel turner is going to work 300% faster than a B level. I think it's more like maybe a 25% bump, maybe a 50% bump, I'd be really happy. Uh, But I think in the context of knowledge work, I think in the context of hiring for leadership, the gap is possibly even more than 300%. Yeah. When you're hiring somebody as a leader, there is no limit, there's no ceiling, there's no roof. They have the same entrepreneurial ability to create something from nothing, tabula rasa. That, to me, is where the magic happens, and that's where I'm surprised at how often I'm still surprised and how I can still underestimate the possibility of what can happen there. Sometimes a team member does something so amazing that I almost my first reaction is almost kind of small, like, hey, like who, who told you you could do that? Like, who, who told you you could, like, blow away the sales goal? Yeah. That happened, right? We yeah, just, this year, absolutely. We had the initial goal, which which we just threw a dart at, but was, like, very ambitious. Mm-hmm. And then we had a stretch goal, which, you know, I'll, I'll own up to the fact that I looked at that and I was kind of like, have we proven that this is possible? It, it was straining at my belief. And then we blew past that, and you failed to kind of mention that to everybody. And then... <laughs> I didn't want to stop working. <laughs> <laughs> and then we created another goal, and we got right at the one-yard line of that. That level of, of results and magic mm-hmm. is what is possible when there's just there's autonomy happening, not micromanaging. Totally. To, to interact with a customer like I had the other day, to interact with another customer that complimented me on the business, didn't know... and. Has not interacted with me in the context of this business in any way. I just I have other relationships with them. Didn't know who you are. Didn't even know who I was. <laughs> Literally said, who, "Who's Jeremy?" We hired our first team member ten months ago. Yeah. Before that, it was you and I. We were doing. Every, I was mostly doing everything. Who's and Jeremy? Here they are. They didn't even know who I was. That was very satisfying. Amazing. 
And this person, this was a raving fan, a raving fan who's Jeremy, and they haven't worked with me in the context of it. That is... It's a team of A players. That's the magic of what we're talking about here. So the point that I'm making is a lot of folks, particularly in property management service-based business, they're not looking for leaders. They're looking for functionaries. I pay you money. You do tasks. Here's the list. I want you to do these tasks faster, better, more efficiently than the last guy. Can you do that? Uh, maybe, maybe you're going to do it 20% better. I'll give you a 10% raise. That's the linear yeah. thinking that I think a lot of folks are at. And I don't even know that I'm, I'm filled with judgment because maybe in some situations it makes sense. You're hiring maintenance tax, somebody's driving a truck and uh, fixing toilets. Maybe it makes more sense there. But you're talking about something spanked. You're talking about leadership. I, I am, and I, I mean, you know, you, the sales goal is an easy one. It's like, oh, they, yeah, of course, you hire salespeople, they do great. But like you just said, that, that was a more, the raving fan was a great example of this, right? So it wasn't like they just worked harder than anybody else. It was that they had the autonomy and they had the fortitude and desire to go above and beyond and make clients happy because our culture has instilled that raving fans are what we need to grow, right? Mm -hmm. And we have no idea. We didn't sit down and write a manual about how that person was going to make them a raving fan. We have systems that are a floor, right? We're big believers in this. Systems should be a floor, but your A players can go above and beyond. Most company, most business owners think about designing systems as a ceiling, right? You design the system and it prevents people from going above and beyond. We love systems as a floor. It ensures a minimum result, but then we expect the people to go to the next level. And it just frees up their brain space. Having systems allows an A player to have the brain space and the latitude to go and do stuff because they're not strapped. They're not like buried all the time because they're reinventing the wheel every single day, right? Mm -hmm. So talent matters, systems matter. They, they multiply each other, in my opinion. Um, and I think that my number one argument, Jordan, for paying people more than you're comfortable paying them is that it's a catalytic catalytic mechanism to ensure that you don't keep strugglers on longer than you want, right? Absolutely. You're you feeling the pain. Exactly. If there's no pain in keeping somebody on, you're going to avoid the pain of having a difficult conversation. But if you're writing them a check and you cringe every time that, that check is written or that deposit's made, um, that creates pressure. Mm. And so we need that discipline and stress sometimes as managers and entrepreneurs. So do, do you have a definition for an A player? Have you ever talked about that or thought like, what is an A player? How do you define an A player? I think of an A player as fundamentally having an entrepreneurial skill set and mindset. They take, a they take a sufficient level of ownership that solutions will be found and they are sufficiently aligned with the values of the company that they're able to answer their own questions by relating to the highest values. I'm in the middle of reading a book by Ben Horowitz right now, his most recent book. Mm -hmm. He's and we're in the section about talking about culture, and his his quote is that culture is what you do. Culture is it, it is what is. It's not an aspiration. It's not something that you use. Like what I want is to be checked out and to just get paid. This is just a, a means to an end. So oh, culture, yeah, I'm going to use that as like a hammer to to get things done. Culture is just what is in your organization. My can I just add to that? Please. This is my favorite one liner. Culture. If you're an owner. Culture is what you reward and what you tolerate. That's what your culture is. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Every day. Culture is the highest level thing you can go after. When I think about our internal culture, we can kind of feel it out. But at the end of the day, in large part, it's about me and you. 
It's about where we're at. It's about our values, what we prioritize, the degree to which we have clarity of thought and alignment around what we are interested in in creating in the world and facilitating in our own way of being. My fifth and final lesson of the decade is this, Jeremy. Let joy be thy compass. In guiding direction, in making decisions, in pursuing endeavors, in dealing with people. I didn't see you going that way. I did not see that one coming. I believe it. You lived that, and I experienced that, but that's a really profound statement. I think that you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of writing out there about that um, it, it's almost a paradox. You and I sat here and talked about how you have to change your habits, you have to be disciplined, you have to do hard things. But going back to the simpler it is, the bigger it grows, there's a lot of writing out there that says, you know, if everything's a struggle every day, forever, mm. you might be going through, you might be going in the wrong direction. You know what I mean? There's something you said about momentum and yeah. leverage and gains. At some point, it, it shouldn't be as much of a struggle, right? You should yeah. be moving on to, to harder things, right? And so that's a great compass for it, right? Is this giving you joy by doing this? We live in America, baby. Anybody can grind out a business that can pay your bills. There's, there's very little impressive about that. Anybody should be able to get to that bar The question is, what else are you getting from it? We tend to operate by proxy. We tend to use something as a measure or a bellwether to understand if we're making progress rather than the thing that we want. And in many cases, we tolerate or we do things that we don't want to be doing in order to get something else. And that toleration is what is holding us back and blocking us from getting the thing that we want. Toleration, relational toleration. When you and I got together. What did we need to what did we need to know? What were we doing? There was some dance, there was some courting. I was trying to pull you into this opportunity. You needed to know that I had the juice, that I had some deal flow, that I had some relationships and some connections. I needed to know that you had the goods, that you were going to be able to bring a level of skill and acumen that would translate to results for the client. Early on, before we really knew each other, that's a lot of what was happening. But you know what else was happening? What was primarily happening for me in retrospect? Do I want to spend time with this person? I'm in my hometown spending about a half of a week of my time with you. Mm-hmm. If the entirety of what I am going to get out of this can be expressed in a spreadsheet, that ain't working. For me, and I didn't, I didn't run a lot of spreadsheets on that X factor. It was something that I intuited. So joy for me is this compounding factor. When I have joy and I'm experiencing it, it's the exponential gap. When I am tolerating things, I feel and I act and I think small. When I'm in the zone from a position of high confidence, high effectiveness, working within my circle of confidence, it's an exponential gap. And joy is the proxy that I would prioritize as knowing when I am acting in the latter rather than the former. That's number five for me. How great does it feel to be in the zone, right? Does anyone ever complain about being in the zone? Have you ever heard anything bad said about being in the zone? I got too much in the zone at work this week. Jeez, I really need to get some TPS reports. Yeah, it's life-giving. Yeah. It it, it just gives. It's purely additive. It adds energy, right? It's joy. Like you said, it's fulfillment. You know, it's very sustainable. Being in the zone is actually very sustainable. And I think that that's a little bit of a misnomer. A lot of people think it's not. It's exponential. Do you mind the backtrack about a player? I want to go through this, but if we have time, I just want to backtrack on that. Hey, give me to one more time. So we were in, I was in a learning day, and Scott Fritz was actually conducting it. My man. Spicer, yeah. Texas, about a half hour from here. Yeah, awesome guy. Uh, 
obviously a mentor of yours, a mentor of mine, before we ever even met each other. Turns out we both had experience with Scott Fritz, must have brought us together. Um, but we were in this group of entrepreneurs, and he was talking about hiring and culture and grading, top grading your people. And somebody said, you know, what is an A player exactly, right? And he said, it's a lot of things, but here's my definition. It's the best person that you can afford for that role. Mm. Because there were small companies in that room, and there were bigger companies in that room. Mm. And he says, you should always hire the best person that you can afford. And so what I learned from that later, which wasn't that day, is that there, there are three types of talent, especially in knowledge work like mm-hmm. we're talking about, right? So when you're doing big, hard things or you know, property management and you, you know, a lot is at stake, uh, you need the right people. There's three kinds of talents at a high level. Um, there is potential talent. That's somebody who you look at them and they look like they can do the job mm-hmm. because they have some criteria. That's most of what of us hire. Most of us, especially at Rinscale, I mean, all of our job descriptions are made up and they're new and it's not like somebody's moving from a direct competitor, right? Like we're, we're putting, by the very nature of the innovative work we're doing, we are forced to put people into a role that have never done it before, mm-hmm. right? Awesome. And we can do that successfully because of potential talent. Now, potential talent is usually the less expensive, right? It's like a rookie contract. You get drafted and you get like the lowest contract and what do you have to do? You have to prove yourself. Right? Put a hedge. Yeah, exactly. So if all you can, all you can afford is emerging talent, then you are going to, it's always the trade-off, time or money, right? What, what resource do you have? So if you have less money to hire somebody who know, who's already proven in their, their, their potential, you need to invest more time understanding if you think, you know, verifying that they're going to be able to do that job, right? Which is, you know, we, we do a lot of that work. We do a lot of work for our clients. We're hiring BDMs who have never done property management sales, but we, have all, we spend a lot of time trying to work through and de-risk if that person will do the job. Mm-hmm. Next level um, is emerging talent. Mm. So this is your, every job description that like every entry level job has is, you know, must have two years of experience, right? If you go on, if we go on Indeed right now and we threw a dart at 10 job descriptions, I bet they'd all say must have two years of experience of this, mm-hmm. right? Must have, that's what everybody wants. Right. They don't want to bring in the veteran who knows everything that's going to cost them a fortune, but right. they want someone who's kind of done it. That's emerging talent. It's kind of the next tier, right? And then you've got proven talent. Proven talent is always the most expensive, right? So that rookie who got a cheap three-year contract who then leads the NFL and, and you know, the Todd Gurley who leads the NFL in touchdowns for two years in a row, they're going to get a proven player contract, and you're going to get pay that guy a lot of money, right? There's less risk in a proven person because they've done it before, but you pay them a lot more. So you have to spend less time betting them out because you watched them. They worked in your industry. They've been working forever. And so, you know what I mean? So anyway, there's just a staircase there. So, it, you know, for the, the business owners that are listening, they're hearing this, and they're like, all right, yeah, they're talking about spending all this money on people. Once you really understand that... You, your A player is going to be relative to your budget, Absolutely. right? And there's tools to understand how to hire that person. So I'd be remiss if we didn't share that because that's a little more actionable. Jeremy, dramatically clarifying. When we talk about hiring a salesperson, which is a conversation we're constantly in with clients, it's really helpful to me, and I think clarifying the client to hear, that in a sales context, an oversimplification, if we just said SMB, mid-market versus enterprise, mm-hmm. that killer salesperson that trained assassin that just finds these monster deals and bring them in, they don't want to work for you. 
They want to work for a very large pharmaceutical or technology company, and they want to get paid. Five, what do you say? Five hundred k to a million. Yeah, and they want to get stock options and you know, all kinds of things that we can't, yeah. that we don't have at our disposal. So we got to take that off the table. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. Let, let's get real clear on the pool of options that would be a fit that that would want to work for us, that we could manage to actually steward and train commensurate with our abilities. There are certain people in certain positions that you and I are not capable of leading relative to where we are currently at. There are certain people that are going to demand too much or it's overkill for the specific role or what I'm willing to pay. So there's a lot of clarity in just getting really clear on who am I really trying to hire for and separate from that, who is really going to apply in light of the package and the culture of what I'm putting out there. And if those things aren't synced up, it's not going to go anywhere good. Exactly. And to, to just add to that, don't look at someone else and say, I need a salesperson just like they have, because that's a different company than you have, right? Absolutely. Even if that company looks like yours, it's not. You know. And so that's the work we do is learn your culture, your company, your role, your clients, and then we find the right fit for that. That's the way you should hire every role. Absolutely. Round us out. Okay. Fifth and final lesson of the decade. All right. This is a good one. Uh, man, there's so many on here. It's tough to do. But I'm, I'm going to say this is one you hear me say all the time. And it has, it has accelerated me as an entrepreneur. It's accelerated rent scale. And you'll know exactly what I mean as soon as I say it. Uh, I learned this from a mentor of mine, Govin, Jay Raman. Um, awesome guy. Uh, make it bad, make it better. Mm. The number one reason that people don't get started is perfectionism, right? It, it is so hard to go from the ground floor to the 10th story of the building is so much easier to take the stairs. But everybody forgets that there's like stair one and stair two and stair three. So it's, uh, I, I heard this recently. I mean, the, you know, I, I'm always interested. There's all, always like every year, Jordan, there's a study that contrasts really high performing people with average people, right? What are they, what's different about them? And one of the things I heard recently was um, the people who are really successful and high performing um, celebrities, people who've reached new levels, kind of broken records in their industry, things like that, they have an absolute comfort level with being awkward and uncomfortable and just getting started. And just like we joke all the time, you're always like, hey, let's just turn on the camera and start going. I'm like, hey, let's talk a little bit about our topic and let's just make sure we're on the same page. Right. And you're like, no, let's just go, baby. Let's just, yeah. You have an amazing appetite for jumping into it, right? And so while we don't ever want to be cavalier, we don't want to do anything that's going to get hurt or create risk for the company, how many initiatives never get off the ground mm -hmm. because they make the minimum viable product too high, mm. right? Mm. So, uh, you know, just make it bad and make it better. It's got to be bad at first. And if, it's, if you're truly doing something good for the market or for the customer or that's just needed to keep the trains running, the bad thing is better than nothing. And so just get it out there. So this is interesting in the context of what you just said around media. If I don't want to do the video where I'm supposedly going to say something that is informational or useful to the client because of how I'm going to look, what's going on there? Is that about service to me or service to the client? Because if the hang-up is I'm self-conscious about how I'm going to sound or how I'm going to look or I'm not putting on the level of performance that I want to, that's about me. That's not truly about service. You could apply this in so many different ways. I think about company names. You have... Um, some really interesting feedback around company names, some things I hadn't considered, and, and I, I've appreciated that. But when I think about company names, there are some cases, like for example with Lead Simple, the first name, the original name of Lead Simple was Lead Connector, and the website was Lead Connector. Horrible. 
<laughs> was it was it a dot biz? <laughs> dot biz, maybe. And in that case, TV. the reason the reason that we did that is that it was so bad that it was going to merit. This has to be corrected, but we got the upside of of shipping. Yeah. And shipping and assuming that market validation, if mm-hmm. you own the outcome and if more client feedback is the raw fuel that you use to improve your offering, then speed and shipping, yeah. that's that virtuous circle. It gets me the inputs that I need to, to improve and get to better. 100%. Uh, you know, here, let me give you a parallel for Renscale. When we first started working together, before we'd hired any team members at all, you booked the very first sales mastery four weeks out. We were going to go to Salt Lake City anyway right. on a business trip. And you said, hey, we got some clients in Salt Lake City. Let's throw a big event and train everybody on an all-day you know, BDM seminar, right? And I you know, had done some sales training before, and I had some content. So it wasn't like we were starting from scratch. But now here we are a year later, and we've had two full evolutions have gotten better, about to do a third. Mm-hmm. That product, if you look at that event as a product, is so much further along than if you would have said, Jeremy, let's ha- like when you're ready, let's have this event. We'd, yeah. probably, we'd probably be having our first sales mastery right now, right? And that's been an amazing thing for our community and our brand and, and just getting to know our customers. We've had a lot of fun. Yeah, man. So I'm laughing. At, like We're just so much farther along because you said, hey, we're going to have this event in four weeks. Are you cool with it? And you said, I'll... I'll book the people if you can manage the content, right? And we just, we divided and conquered and we went to work. And like I said, we're so much further along because of making it bad the first time. You know, there's a really interesting corollary to the idea that you can't read the label from inside the bottle. And that is, you can't understand what is needed in the mind of the prospect if you're just using your own internal relative reference points. The bar that you and I would apply when talking about sales internally is going to be very different than where the client is at. What the client knows about property management, the level of PTSD that they have had in dealing with certain property management related issues is so different. It's it's high def, whereas the client and the prospect is working at Crayola level. And if you can't reconcile and see the gap between the two, then it prevents you because you think there's going to be this tax. Jeremy, I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it bad something bad's going to happen. There's going to be a cost. The market's going to see it. It's like the virtuoso who's playing a Rachmaninoff concert and they mess up 28 notes. And I will never be able to know which 28 they are because I have no appreciation at that level of of, of excellence. Totally camouflaged to you. Yeah. Love it. Let's make it bad and make it better. A decade in the books. I'm incredibly excited to be working with you going into the next decade. For for somebody that's looking ahead, for somebody that is on, we're recording this on January 3rd, for somebody that is thinking about what to carry into the next uh, decade, what is your advice for, for, for focus from one entrepreneur to another? Parting thoughts, closing words on, on focus and priority for other entrepreneurs. Ooh, you know, I get excited about focus, right? That was, my, that was the first decade of entrepreneurism. I said all the time, my, first, my 20s, my first 10 years of entrepreneurism is like I had an oil field in Texas and I had 50 wells dug 20 feet deep, right? None of them were flowing oil. There was a lot of work digging 50 good, wells. It was a lot of work. From the surface. Yeah, from the surface, but none of them were none of them reached gold, you know? Yeah, baby. So uh, focus has been my, you know, mantra. But, but at the same time, 
we don't want focus so rigid that you're blinded to opportunities, right? Like the, the Jordan and Jeremy story is I was so focused with my, my um, juicy results, which was a similar business model, but it was industry agnostic. And you approached me and you were right. There was an amazing opportunity here. Um, it, was a, it was a hungry market that had a real need for something that we had proven in, in a bunch of other markets. And if I would have dogmatically fallen in love with my focus, I would not be here today. Mm-hmm. So my, and this, this is in parity with why we're, I'm in Austin, right? The team is getting together. I tell the team all the time, we want you to bring as many great ideas as you can, but I only want you to bring them to the quarterly meetings. <laughs> and I'm obviously joking a little bit there, but because once we set the machine in motion, we, don't, we do not want to wake up every day and look around and ask if we're running in the right direction. We just want to run, and then we want to strategically schedule in times to be flexible and look up and look around and say, are we running in the right direction? Are we running fast enough? Should we take that hill instead? So I would say that, you know, predefine the points where you're going to measure progress and reassess and schedule that time in advance. We have those scheduled for the whole year. Yeah, the whole year, four times, completely broken. EOS, exactly. Quarterly retreats, whatever it is. You know, honestly, Gazelles, Rockefeller Habits does this, Scaling Up does this. Yeah, seriously. This is such a universal thing. Uh, The business quarter has been around for 100 years, right? So schedule some time on a quarterly and monthly basis, right? And then just stay focused in between those meetings. That, that's that's kind of my my uh, parting words. I love that. My parting words are being overdoing. It's about the art of becoming. Who are you becoming? Prioritizing that, getting clear on who you need to be in order to do the things that would allow you to have what you want rather than inverting that, which is where I spent <clears throat> a lot of maybe the first half of this last decade at um, – I'm excited about being with you on the journey of this podcast and what we're going to be talking about, exploring topics related to sales, exploring topics related to entrepreneurship, branding position, and marketing. You are like a walking encyclopedia Britannica of business knowledge and acumen. I rarely get outfoxed and outmaneuvered in my ability to randomly invoke acronyms and concepts that are business related and are actually of value. Yes. You are one of the few people who do that. I am committed to one-upping you throughout the course of this show in that regard. Appreciate that. <laughs> Which means we will both continue to <clears throat> educate and invest and share what we have with you guys and hopefully add value along the way, documenting the journey Brother, let's keep doing it. Excited to geek out with you, man. My brother from another mother, off to you guys. See you in the new year.